welcome to uh, welcome to breakfast. Thank you. Uh, with Craig. Thank you. Craig. Uh, working title is um, coffee, eggs, and inspiration. But that's um, uh, probably not fair to vegans, and I may become a vegan. So I'll really, probably drop the eggs. Yeah. Amazing. So anyway, okay. that's the working title. All right. And the idea uh, is to just have breakfast. Yeah. And coffee. Yeah. Uh, with an interesting person, and do that sort of once a week, and their story. Amazing. So today we've got the wonderful Adujare uh, Doherty. That's right. Did I say that right? Yeah, you did. Actually. Almost <laughs> I'm going to call you Dej. It's easier for me to yeah. pronounce. Yeah. And uh, we met at uh, farm. Uh, was it? No, it wasn't farmhouse. It was uh, Soho House Festival at Kenwood Soho. House. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Do you remember uh, how we met? Uh, we were either side of the fence. Trying to stay out of the mosh pit in front of Black Eyed Peas. That's it. <laughs> That's so it. Uh, Will yeah. I Am was doing his thing with the with the band there, and uh, yeah. we were having a chat. Exactly. And, uh, and uh, Dej uh, started telling me about his business, so I thought it'd be really interesting to uh, have a bit of a chat. So yeah. wind back the clock a bit, yeah, and tell me a little bit about uh, how you grew up and um, you know what what your experience was when you were younger. Um, going back quite a long time now. And almost almost four decades. Um, I was born in West London um, to Nigerian parents. My dad at the time was probably just about to leave the Nigerian military. Um, my mum was a barrister. Um, but I was born here pretty much because my mum's doctor was here. Uh, but otherwise, after that, I went straight back to Nigeria um, and grew up in... Um, well, the early part of my life on a sort of mili- not a military base, but within a uh, sort of military area in Lagos, because my dad was still in the military at the time. Um, and then I came back to boarding school here when I was quite young. Um, I was just just almost five five years old. Came back to boarding school for a couple of years, and then went back to Nigeria again for about four or five years, and then came back to boarding school again when I was almost. Um, I was about 10 years old. Um, but my parents are Nigerian, my family's from Nigeria, so they never left Nigeria. Yeah. So it meant school here, and then the day after school, <clears throat> straight back to the... On the plane. On the plane. Must have wrecked up the emails. Straight, I did, yeah, straight back to... In the, in the early days, British Caledonian, which doesn't exist oh, anymore. Oh, okay, now. yeah. Um, but yeah, straight back to Nigeria. So where's home? So home is Lagos and London. So I've... I've more or less settled in London for now, um, but my you know my mother's still in Lagos, so for me that's very much home. Yeah, so you're back there frequently. Eh? I'm back there as frequently as I can be, which has only been once this year, but yeah. um, planning to go back a few, a few more times now. Pretty interesting place. I've not been there myself. Yeah. Uh, apparently, it's going to be the first mega city, hundred million people. Yeah, you tell us a bit more about it. I didn't actually know that. I mean, Lagos is a, a phenomenal city. It's quite different now to the city I remember growing up in. I guess when you're young, you don't necessarily notice certain things, but I do remember having an amazing upbringing there. The, you know, traffic was still pretty light, power wasn't such a big problem, um, my family had millions of friends, and Nigerian culture is such that you you never, and these were the days before mobile phones when Nigeria only had as a country and you had 100,000 fixed lines so you can imagine that you know communication was a bit of a problem but culturally we have a have a system of 
not needing to let someone know that you're going to come, going to come visit them. So you literally turn up at people's houses and you knock on the door and they welcome you with open arms and they feed you and you basically stay there as long as you like. Really? I mean, yeah, literally. I mean, you can have... And if it's family members, they can turn up with a suitcase and be expecting... Well, it's a lovely culture. It is a lovely culture, yeah. And, you know, they will literally stay a week, two, three. Um, So growing up in Lagos, I I remember just the sheer amount of people... And um, Lagos is a series of islands that are joined to the mainland by bridges. So you see, you see water literally every day. Um, and the temperature tends to hover around, around about 34 degrees, 35 degrees. Really and it's 90 something percent humidity. Oof. So it's, um, yeah, it's seriously. So you want to be in the water, really, don't you? You do, but actually, we're on the Atlantic, which is pretty rough. And um, I'd say, actually, as, as a. As a country were not like the the biggest swimmers um and waves you know when, when i was a kid i just remember waves seeming absolutely enormous and obviously you know my family yeah. wouldn't let me anywhere near the water because it's you know it's pretty pretty tough sea but um nigeria as a country is incredibly interesting i mean we have just the fact that it even works as a as a as, as a nation is, is is a miracle we have over 500 languages spoken in the country, let alone dialects. I mean, these are real languages. Um, We have 200-odd million people in the country. Um, We've got um, we've got a federal government system that's sort of overlaid with our traditional laws. So where I'm from in Nigeria is actually it's a, it's an ancient city that's about two and a half hours from Lagos called Ife, yeah. um, and that is supposed to be the source of all Yoruba people, uh-huh. which are the people that dominate the southwest of Nigeria and also the southeast of of Benin Republic. So. You know, the, the, the Yoruba tribe was actually split when the, the British drew a border right. that defined Nigeria. They actually, you know, just essentially cut through yeah. the, the tribe. So um, where I'm from, Ife Kingdom, um, you know, growing up, my king was the king of the city where I was from. And if there's a major problem in your city, the king is expected right. to wade in. And sort of help. like the local mayor or... Effectively, yeah. I mean, you do have literally a, a, a governor, so the city's within a state that has a governor and it has, you know, it will have uh, local councils, etc. But there is this sort of overlay of uh, traditional rule as well. Yeah. So the complexities in terms of um, social interaction, politics, uh, diversity, religion are, you know, they're, they're, they're endless. Yeah. Um, so in that way, it's an incredibly complex but you know complexity creates interesting things so opportunity and buzz and exactly and, and, and energy yeah. so um it, so it's just you know it's just got that that buzz because of its complexities but yeah very i mean i'm grateful to be to, to have grown up in nigeria yeah and, and be nigerian and british but it sounds it sounds like an amazing melting pot melting pot so yeah. you're sort of backwards and forwards aloft and yeah. uh, and your mum's still there and yeah. uh you went to school and you came out of school and, and uh, went on to university, I think, and uh, started yeah. out as a lawyer? Yeah, so I went to university um, and I studied law at undergraduate level, like half of my family. My mother, my older brother and sister also studied law. Uh, my younger sister did law and anthropology. Um, my younger brother studied history and then did the law conversions. It's very much a family thing. Was that, uh, a, was that a sort of uh, a family expectation or was it something that you really were drawn to? Um, 
Apparently, I'm naturally argumentative. <laughs> so it does suit no, my. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> um, so it does suit, suit my nature. I'm not argumentative in a kind in a, in a belligerent way, but just I suppose in in more in an exploratory way. Yeah, apparently. Um, but I think it was a bit of both. It was something I was drawn to, and also for a lack of imagination, or I suppose uh, commitment to what I perhaps really felt I wanted to, to do because you know you make the decision to you decide your university course at 16 basically yeah. um, so at 15 16 you sort of have to decide what you more or less are expected to do for the rest of your life which I think is quite a young age well, to, to, uh, I think it's hard at any time isn't it? yeah exactly you know so um, I chose um, I chose law because I, I thought I'd find it interesting anyway yeah. and it's something that I suppose similar to, to, to technology in many ways. It's something that is a you know continuous line throughout throughout humanity. We've always needed laws. We always need laws, yeah. um, and um, laws essentially govern how we interact yeah. with each other as human beings. Yeah. Um, it's good discipline. You know, good way of uh, thinking teaches you attention to detail and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, critical thinking and um, being able to write and also <coughs> just focus and concentrate. I mean, yeah. it almost entirely destroyed my love of reading because you have to <laughs> read so I relate to that we had this in common actually I started as a lawyer as did well. you yeah, really yeah. what yeah. did you a quarter um, of a century ago <laughs> <laughs> and then did you practice as a lawyer yeah yeah I was a barrister yeah I was a court lawyer oh wow and I think you were as well right I, I was yeah so I went on to um, I went on to do the bar I was called to the bar in 2003 um, and then I worked as a county court advocate for a while, so yeah. doing you know the sort of work you do at the junior end of the bar, sort of pretty boring stuff, right. um, charging orders, uh, road traffic accidents, um, mortgage possessions. Um, I think as a career, as a as a job for me, I, I enjoyed it because it actually gave me a lot of free time. Yeah. Um, when you know outside my hours in court, I actually had quite a lot of I actually had quite a lot of free time. Right. But I think as a as a profession, certainly, if I was to be in a nine to five, as it were, I, I absolutely would love to do that. But I think my um, creativity and drive to do something that had a little bit of a wider impact um, meant that it was something I. I, I I didn't want to do for a long time. So where did that uh, curiosity take you? So curiously, uh, it took me to headhunting lawyers for investment banks because I partly thought, well, hopefully, if I can just go and make loads of money, then I can put that to good use. Um, and then after about, and I actually really enjoyed that job because it's, um, I was working for a firm that had really great clients. This is before the financial crisis. So we were headhunting um, really high quality lawyers for private practice yeah. and placing them in house investment banks. Gotcha. And I really enjoy the human part of it, just going to meetings for people who are looking for lawyers. And it's more than just filling a position, it's really about their lives because these people are so busy. And if they don't find people to join their team, it means that everyone else is covering that role and it means they're working 18 hours a day and mm. they don't see their kids and they don't see their husbands. And there's just this real human mm. aspect to it, which I really enjoyed and talking to people and finding out how I could help them solve their problems. Yeah. What I didn't enjoy so much was the sort of the, the I, I found it to be quite a, 
a much more money orientated world than, than I was particularly cared for. So yeah. um, I lasted for about four months. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did the training, which was uh, unbelievable. I, in fact, I don't think I would have been able to start or uh, successfully run my business if I hadn't had done that training because I came from a completely non-business background, so I wasn't used to... Um, I had done some sales in the past as a, as a, as a kid, just in summer, um, to make money, but I wasn't used to having an organized commercial structure in terms of, you know, make calls for two hours and then, you know, schedule meetings and have yeah. a diary. I've just, you know, my, I've been used to just, but you know, I've got a case at 10 o'clock, I've got to be there right. at quarter two and that's, you know, prepare the night before and after that, you know, that's it. Yeah. Um, so learning that structure and just learning how to, you know, we work from 8.30 to about 7.30, 8, 8.30 at night every day and just learning that, getting that discipline of just getting those hours yeah. in and having a daily structure, I think stood me in really good stead to, to go on to start um, the whole youth company. Okay. Yeah. Via trying to start a men's magazine. <laughs> okay. So I actually left headhunting to start a men's magazine because I thought that... As you do. Uh, as, as one I mean, does. The logical progression. Completely. Yeah, made perfect sense to me at yeah. the time. <laughs> um, I think I'm naturally quite a creative person. In fact, if I hadn't studied law, my second choice was go to Savile Row to learn how to make suits. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, but um, I enjoyed men's magazines, but I started to enjoy them less when they became full of advertising and, you know, the actual enjoyable part of the magazine I thought was just was shrinking over time it's yeah. more and more advertising yeah. um, more and more sort of useless information yeah. um, more and more yeah, aspirational um, uh, articles for, for, for that were completely out of most young people's reach and I thought there's um, you know I had lots of friends that were you know at the times my age you know 24 25 yeah. that were I thought were incredible people and doing exceptionally well you know whether they were doctors or scientists or writers or musicians that were just that no one had ever heard of and no one and, and I thought their stories are really amazing yeah. and interesting and why should there always be why should magazines glossy men's magazines always be about a celebrity or a famous person right. that we actually already know loads about you yeah. know I thought why why don't we have a a magazine that first of all physically feels nice so people actually want to keep it because I wasn't I suppose in a way I was already thinking about waste and the fact that you know, magazines were quite throwaway and I thought well yeah. if you're going to print something then it might as well be become part of a reference library yeah. that you keep and you can always go back to. Right. So the idea was to um, shout about young people, uh, men or women, that were doing exceptionally well in some field that you hadn't heard of and also to do things like serialise the novels of um, writers that hadn't been published yet, yeah. um, and to have things like um, you know language courses, you know sort of you know broken down over over months in the magazine, and things like you know the um, things that I wanted to know about but I didn't know anything about, like how engines really work, and really you know maybe have a, a series of uh, courses about you know how about mechanical engineering, just really useful information. Yeah. Um, and that was actually doing quite well. Condé Nast were quite keen to... What's the name of the magazine? It was going to be called Rogue, yeah. um, which is a name that's actually now been taken, but the magazine was going to be called Rogue at yeah. the time. But then when I 
stumbled upon um, the product that um, we now mainly sell as part of the whole leaf company, I just, I, at that point in time, I just thought, this is it, this is where everything has to go, and magazine can wait, and, you know, sustainable products. Everything went on hold. Everything went on hold, yeah, and this was 2007. So what, so tell, tell me about that happy accident, what, how did you uh, stumble upon it, as, as you say? So my um, two really good friends of mine, um, brothers Peter and George, are originally from Karnataka, uh, what, Kerala actually, in India, yep. and they had come back from India in, it must have been 2003, with a really roughly made bowl that, that, was, that was made from what I found out to be waste palm fronds, and they basically gave it to me and said, Dave, figure it out. And I was thought, brilliant. <laughs> have the first well, Figure out how to use figure it, out, make it. Do, do something interesting with it. Okay. You know, just you know, figure out something around it, a bigger idea around it. Yeah. And um, I couldn't think of anything to do with it. So I sent one to the body shop, because at the time they were the only sort right. of natural, ethical brand yep. that I knew of. Yeah. And they sent me a, a really nice letter saying, yeah, it's really nice, but what are we supposed, what are we supposed <laughs> to do with it? Um, and, uh, yeah, exactly, I thought maybe, I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> um, and uh, that bowl went under my kitchen sink, basically. Right. And then three years later, when I was gainfully unemployed and um, <laughs> trying to put my magazine together, trying to teach myself in design so actually I could actually literally put the magazine together myself. Um, I went under the kitchen sink and this bowl was just sat there and it was three or four years later and it hadn't broken down and it was still fine and I think I was just starting to get switched on to um, the world's environmental problems and the idea of sustainability. So for me, it made perfect sense that start now rather than wait, because this is without a shadow of a doubt. I think for me, as an idea, the magazine I love the the the, the point of it, but there were, there were actually aspects of it that I didn't particularly like, which is that in as much as I thought, okay, if you're going to print something, print something that's going to be a reference library. But at the same time, I think printing loads of stuff is, can be quite wasteful. Yeah. So it didn't necessarily, it didn't tick all the boxes. But right. when I saw this bar, I thought, this has got to be it. We've got. What, what, sorry to, to cut across sure. you. What, what was it about sustainability that, that drew you? Is there, is there a sort of an earlier route on that? And um, is it something that's uh, always been interesting to you? I think it's part of what growing up in Nigeria gave me. Um, Developing countries, actually, I think there's an idea that developing countries have a lot of catching up to do in terms of sustainability um, because of the lack of infrastructure and technology. But actually, I think it's the other way around. Because of the lack of resources, we've had to find ways of renewing and reusing and reducing the amount of resources mm. that we use. You know, in, in you know, Nigeria has four and a half thousand megawatts of installed power, which is which could, would barely run it's tiny, yeah. a small town yeah. in, in, in you know in, in Europe. Yeah. Um, so we've always had to, as a country, make do. Um, we've got enormous water problems. So you know there are times when even in Lagos the water stops coming out of the tap, you know, and so you've, you know, every Nigerian knows how to have a bath with a bucket and a bowl, 
every, every Nigerian. You right. literally fill a bucket of water and you have a bowl and that's how you have your bath. And it means you save so much water because whilst yeah. you're scrubbing yourself, there's no water being wasted. You know, you're not just yeah. running a shower. There's no tap just running. Yeah. yeah. And as growing up as a kid, I remember um, people, mostly kids actually, would sort through our rubbish looking for plastic, um, you know, metals, anything that could be recycled because they needed money. You know, they weren't, they didn't live in a society that would just give them things for free. So they would find any way of, you know, finding, making a living for themselves and actually gathering things to be recycled. It was very common when I was, you know, when I was a kid. Right. So I think. So um, it's kind of in the bone marrow and. Uh, it kind of was, yeah. Not, not, I wouldn't say necessarily entirely culturally, but because of both culturally and environmentally. Yeah. And also, I think we we naturally have a tendency to just not waste stuff. Um, so I think that's, that's probably where that, that came from. And so when I found this bowl, it just, for me, just, it was a very dimly lit light bulb, but it was, it was, it was a light bulb. Surged maybe. slowly on. It says, yes, yeah, LED. <laughs> and you've got some products now. Keep in I mind do, yeah. that uh, some, yeah. some people may be listening over, uh, yeah. over a podcast, so try and describe yeah. these things. So these are, um, to describe them, I mean, if what do you what, how would you describe that? How does it look to you? It looks like a platter. Yeah. Uh, it, it's uh, it's quite attractive. It it has a natural uh, look and feel. It yeah. sort of almost looks like wood. Yeah. Uh, that's been carved. Yeah. Uh, it has a. Uh, I see you're getting me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it has yeah. a, a grain uh, to it. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure. You know that's that's clearly the uh, the material it's made out of. Yeah. It has a it has a shape and a, a design. It can hold. It uh, looks like it can hold stuff. It won't fall off the side. It's yeah, quite right. A plate. Yeah, no, very good. Yeah, no, that's a better description than I would have done. Yeah, I mean, it's we we literally um, these are made from um, naturally shed palm fronds of the Arica palm tree. It's called the so the Arica Katechi, which is a uh, it's a palm tree that's endemic to um, India, um, and it's uh, it's. Nothing to do with the oil palm, <laughs> thankfully, and it's a it's a palm tree that they have hundreds of millions of in India, right? And it's what's known as a self-cleaning palm. It sheds its the upper part of its of its tree of the tree trunk, the sort of the final third, um, has a uh, piece of organic foliage that wraps around the trunk that attaches to the leaf stem where the actual leaves come from. So right. it's part of the leaf structure. And these trees actually, that, that part of, that, of the tree unravels every month and falls to ground. Okay. So you get a sheet of organic material that, as you said, on the outside actually starts as green and yeah. as it dries on the ground slowly turns to sort of a sort of a mid to light brown. Right. And on the inside has got this beautiful print and pattern which um, is completely unique to every leaf. So every leaf that falls... It's like a fingerprint. It's almost like a, like a fingerprint. You'll never yeah. find two that are exactly the same. Interesting. Um, and all we do is... So traditionally, these palm fronds had been gathered up in India because they actually, you know, they, they cause a huge problem. They can't... You know, India... Or this southern India is very similar to Nigeria. They effectively have two seasons. They have monsoons and they have the dry season. Right. And when these fall to ground during monsoons, they quite quickly turn to mulch. So yeah. they traditionally have to gather them it's up. It's a waste product. It's a waste product, yeah. completely waste product. So traditionally they would gather them up and burn them. 
Um, and that's what they've been doing for years. Right. Yeah. So all we do is we get some of these leaves before they, they get they get piled on fire. And we wash them in local spring water source and we heat press them at 180 degrees into, into shape. And that's what forms them solid. Simple as that. Literally as simple as that. Right. It's, it's the simplest product you'll ever come across. And it forms what is a prettier, sturdier, stronger, better disposable plate. I mean, it's completely liquid proof. It's uh, completely chemical free. Our factory is completely chemical free. It looks attractive and it works better than paper or plastic paper plates. And what happens afterwards? So afterwards, what you're supposed to do with it, now you can feed this to cows. You can feed it to cows. You can feed it to cows, yeah, it's completely natural. So, okay. so you can, and actually the offcuts from the plates that we, we sample to shape, we do feed to cows. Okay. Um, but afterwards, you, you ideally should compost it at home if you have a home compost. Or if you don't and you've got a garden um, and your council, you're lucky enough to live somewhere where your council collects garden waste, put it in with your garden waste. Okay. Or put it in with your food waste. But I did. That's the that's the best way to get rid of it. So yeah. compost uh, compostable plates. And and um, what what do people generally do? What do you do? Do you keep them and and wash them and reuse them? Or? Yeah. So I tend to um, keep them and wash them and reuse them several times. Yeah. But you know the caterers and the you know the the, the events that we supply them to, like house festival, right. and all that kind of thing, they 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 can't for commercial purposes because sure. they're not coated. Yeah. Um, and they're hundred percent natural. So yeah. we have to market them as single use. And that's actually where where I first uh, saw it and, and where I met you. It yeah. Was at house festival. There yeah. Were, I don't know thousands of people there yeah, wandering thousands, around yeah. all day and exactly. having drinks in the sun and yeah. and. Uh, Lots of delicious food on on these plates, and it's nice to nice to hear that none of it uh, polluted. Not at way. all. Yeah, in the least. Yeah. So tell me a bit more about the company behind this and uh, how people can buy them. So we're called the Whole Leaf Company. We do sell. We sell online through our own website. We're also um, just about to relaunch on Amazon, um, and we otherwise um, so we sell directly to consumers online, and otherwise we sell to businesses both online and offline. So our big customers are people like Alliance, Nisbet, big wholesalers that sell into the catering trade. Gotcha. Um, And the company was formed actually to, not just to sell plates made from from waste palm leaves. The idea was to form a brand that would represent the sustainable lifestyle brand of the future. So the idea is where we'd like to end up is a one-stop shop for sustainable lifestyle. So somewhere you can go that is something like an Ikea or a Muji or, or something like that where you say, look, I'd like to live a more sustainable life. I'd like the physical products yeah. in my environment to be to be sustainable. And I don't necessarily want to really hunt around for it. Um, yeah. And the idea is that we provide somewhere where you can go to and we will provide almost anything that you can think of for your life and your lifestyle that is made and sourced sustainably. So we would have already thought of the design and thought of the um, supply chain and looked into all that very closely. So gotcha. that's the idea and that's where that's where we're going. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's breeding it into different products and um, yeah, yeah, slowly. In the same way that IKEA Ingar Camperan started off selling matches and then slowly progressed to selling gift cards and now and that you know, know, yeah, yeah. matches. Literally just matches, that's all he sold was just matches. Um, and um, so we're starting with palm leaf plates and we'll slowly progress into sustainable, you know 
furniture and yeah. you know almost anything. I don't see why you know one day I hope that we can sell sustainable washing machines and cars. Literally everything. We want to be somewhere where you can go and just get literally any physical product that you yeah. need. And um, uh, enormous interest and in, in demand for that. There must have been mm. some some tough times. You've got two co-founders. I believe. Yes. Yeah. Um, like any small business, yeah. there are growing pains. Tell me about uh, yeah. some of the challenges you, you faced along the way. I think the first challenge is people thought we were genuinely mad. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, when I first, I went back to Peace and George and said, look, I think we can, you know, build a brand around this product and, um, you know, start selling them commercially. And they effectively said, no, that's actually a crazy idea. We've kind of, you know, we're way past that. It took me two weeks to convince them. They were the ones who brought it to me in the first place. <laughs> So your founders need to, needed some. Uh, your co-founders needed some convincing. They needed a little bit of convincing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think they thought I was mad, <laughs> and um, eventually I convinced them that I wasn't, and it was a really great idea. But I think the it was a really odd time. I mean, it's now looking back, it was probably a great time to start a business because it was probably the toughest time in the last. 15, this was two, years. 12 years ago, right? So 2007? 2007, we formed, we, mm -hmm. we formed the, our first company in the brand, the Whole Leaf Company. But we had our first sale in <clears> April 2008. Right. And that was real credit crunch, financial yeah. crisis. Yeah. You know, this, it, in, it, this was the peak of it. It was in full swing. I mean, it felt like, uh, you know, a lot of people... A lot of millennials, for instance, just don't remember it. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people now probably it's so long ago that people can't probably can't quite picture or really go back to feeling how it really felt at the time. It was like yeah. doomsday. It was you know it yeah. felt like Armageddon. It felt yeah. like the world was falling apart. You know, the global financial systems just crashed. Yeah. Um, credit just literally disappeared overnight. Yeah. So we were starting a business. Did you have funders or were you... No, we self-funded. We yeah. kind of scraped together as much money as we had between the three of us and we were, you know, um, um, George was just coming out of uh, dentistry school and Peter was, I think he was just about to start working for his family business. So we were all kind of three yeah. young guys with not a lot of money between us and um, here we were trying to sell something that was, um, you know, in a way like a commodity item where we needed to, to, to purchase tons of these things to be able to sell them on. And um, no one would give you money. Um, so it was, it, was, it was pretty tough. Um, we got really lucky very early on because I found a way of getting into um, Sainsbury's. I just called them up and somehow managed Amazing. to yeah. speak to the right buyer and, um, say the right things on the phone and he invited me down to their office and he said yeah absolutely so that gave you some immediate volume yeah it gave us an immediate order right <laughs> so we signed off with Sainsbury's um, 500 Sainsbury's stores and 300 Oxfam stores by Ox by August 2008 we've been trading for four months right it was, it was amazing so we went along to our bank and said that we've got Sainsbury's we've got to start supplying them in spring summer next year we've got 800 stores yeah. to supply Let's bring someone next year, give us the money. No, we couldn't get Couldn't get it. We couldn't get it. We couldn't even, we couldn't get an overdraft. We couldn't even get a credit card. You know, we couldn't get any credit, nothing. It's sort of, no, you're on your own. In fact, the advice we were given at the time was, you're over trading, get out of centuries. And I thought, well, it's, 
I mean, I was naive as a business person. So you, so you had too much money tied up in production before payment and all that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, he said, look, you're not going to be able to, to do it. They're too yeah. big a customer for you. Cash yeah. flow. Uh, he was totally right. I mean, we had no cash, so um, cash flow is a problem. So we had a bright idea to apply to be on Dragon's Den. Okay. <laughs> yeah, in December 2008. Uh, and uh, 2009, they invited me down to their studio, in, which is now um, the the TV centre, which is now just a Soho house and, and flats, but in, in then it was the BBC TV centre right, in so White, White City, City. White yeah. City, yeah. Across from Westfield. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I went down to White City, went up to production room and did my pitch to camera, which is a, um, a sort of screen test, essentially. Yeah. And um, they just don't tell you anything after that for a while. Do you remember the pitch? I remember the pitch, yeah, I remember it really well. It's just, I, I think I was asking for about a hundred grand. And it was literally just to have enough money to buy stock at the right price to be able to sell it on. Um, and maybe look at setting up our own small manufacturing unit in India. Because what we had done yeah. was find someone who could manufacture for us and outsource the manufacturing. Right. Where I thought it'd be great if we could you know, start you know, creating our own in-house manufacturing unit. Yeah. Um, and then a couple of months later, I got a call from BBC going, yeah, you're on. So what was the pitch? Give me, give me the so pitch. So the pitch was, <laughs> hi, my name is Dave Stockerty. You can find this on YouTube. <laughs> um, I'm here from the Whole Leaf Company um, to ask for 120,000 of your hard-earned pounds um, so that we can buy and develop our product, which are palm leaf plates, which are the only truly eco-friendly alternative to paper and plastic disposable plates. Um, what we're going to do with your money is develop our product um, and hold more stock in the UK so we don't have to turn down business from the people that are trying to buy from us and hold enough stock to be able to supply our new customers, Sainsbury's and Oxfam. Well, that's basically it. I'm impressed it's uh, like <laughs> 10 years ago, right? That was, uh, that was literally, it was almost to the day 10 years ago. So yeah. you, you yeah. get called back, you're on the, you're on the show, that yeah. must have been nerve-wracking. It was nerve-wracking because I, I watched I used to watch Dragon's Den. It was yeah. one of my favourite programmes. I loved it. <laughs> so I think just turning up at... And first of all, it's in a studio. And who were the dragons at that time? So there was Peter Jones, uh, Theo Pafitas, Duncan Bannatyne, Deborah Meaden and James Kahn. Right. Classic, so classic line-up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know they, you have to turn up to Elstree and Borenwood Studios at 6am. Um, and no, you, know, you obviously haven't slept because you've been up all night trying to go gross profit turnover and you <laughs> wake up to it gross profit net profit turnover exactly remember your figures so you turn up with you know having had an hour's sleep and um, you get fed you know coffee and, and, and coca-cola so you're like <laughs> so so literally, literally literally i thought you're going to turn up this lavish breakfast and you're like healthy food none of that and um you get well, everyone gets their makeup done and you do the bit so the original Dragon's Den, you remember you walk up these stairs, yes, yes. which aren't actually real stairs. Oh, aren't they? No. So everyone does the stair walking bit. It's just a staircase with nothing. The illusion is shattered. I thought it was the sort of... This abandoned mis- warehouse. Your abandoned warehouse. No, it's none of that. There's literally, just a set. It's just a set. Okay. Uh, so you do your stair, you film your stair walking bit, and then you get everyone gets put in a, in a sort of a holding pen. Yeah. And... Um, I just got a tap on the shoulder. This must have been about seven o'clock in the morning, seven thirty. Um, got a tap on the shoulder, um, saying, "Dave, uh, producer wants to see you go next door." Chat to producer. He goes, 
right, you're going to be on in three minutes, just make sure your flies are done up, and uh, yeah. and that is it. That's, that's it. the advice you got. That's literally the advice you get. Make sure your flies are done up. You're on in three minutes, and you're literally on in three minutes, and that is it. There's no, it's just from there to there. One take? One take. So they just say, look, we're just going to roll camera. We don't cut. The only time you might cut is if you're... Um, if you say something about having got a contract or a deal and they ask you to produce that evidence, right? We will you need to go and get it. Yeah, you would, yeah. you know, so you, you know, on, on, on TV, it looks like you bring taken out of your pocket. In fact, you're not allowed to have anything in your pockets, right? Um, so they hang on to it, and at that point, they will cut, they give it to you, put it in your pocket, and they start again. But other than that, the only rule in Dragon's Den is that you get, I think it's either two or three minutes for your pitch, yeah is the only time you're guaranteed. Yeah. And they can, after that, they can keep you for as long as... So you've got to be succinct. You've got to get your point across. Yeah. And you obviously had some interest. We ha yeah, I had some interest. So it's, I was in front of them for two hours. What? Yeah. It's so bizarre. So you, on TV, it looks like, because of the way it's cut, you only, I think we, I was on TV for maybe 10 or 15 minutes max, but I was in front of them for two hours and it, the time flew by. It was like being in the yeah. twilight zone. It was so yeah, odd. No doubt. Because when I came downstairs, my, my, my business partner, Pete, was like, what have you been doing up there? Like, what do you mean? You've been up, you've been up there for, for two hours. Did you get the money? Did you get the money? Like, no. <laughs> so um, we got loads. The interest was incredible. They thought yeah. it was just the best product. Yeah. Um, but they were convinced that because of the the credit crunch and the global financial crisis, trying to introduce a product that is more expensive yeah. than its counterpart, right. paper and plastic, at that time okay. was going to be a difficult thing to do. And yeah. that we would struggle to get to the volumes we needed to get to to bring the price down to somewhere where it was price competitive with paper right. and plastic. Um, so you walked out with your fly done up. My fly done up. And no money. <laughs> and no money, but I felt like they were wrong. You know, I, I, you know, I, I just thought they underestimated the purchasing public. And I just thought, you know, that actually, and actually what was happening at the time, which I didn't know, it was just gut feeling, was that sales of organic products, for instance, through supermarkets actually went down. But over that time, from 2007 to, and right up through that, through the recession, right through to still now, sales of fair trade products were growing in, in double digits right. in groceries, so 11, 12%. So what was happening is that the consumer was caring less about themselves, they're not consuming organic products, but actually spending less money, but being more precise and more thoughtful about where they were putting their money. So consumers were choosing more expensive fair trade products, even though they had less money, they were still choosing more expensive fair trade products because it was fair um, over that period. So how'd you get your money? So in the end, we didn't get the money, um, but we just got just, we scraped together just about enough money to be able to have the stock for sale. slid on through and then it started to grow. I yeah, guess. and it slowly started to grow. And actually, Dragon's Den really helped because yeah. not everyone who goes, does the food, does the film and gets on TV. Even some people who get investment don't get on TV. Really? Yeah. Okay. So for us, just the, the marketing. The exposure. Was, the exposure yeah, was. Like free advertising, I suppose. Completely. Yeah. And uh, I'm Amazing. not sure we would have survived as a business without wow. it. Yeah, because it was. It was very early stage social media as well. So we didn't have the 
catalytic effect that that social media yeah. would would give us now. There was no Instagram, for right, instance. Right, right. Um, Twitter was at its early stage, as was Facebook. So yeah. you know, we were doing what we could with social media, but it wasn't. It just wasn't quite as uh, enormous a catalyst as it gotcha. can be now. Yeah. So we just kind of struggled on through, um, doing the best we could and. You know, it brought a lot of attention, and it meant that we were able to get customers that, you know, bigger customers that would pay us up front, and yeah. we would deliver six months later, and that kind of thing. And we just kind of bumbled our way through it that way, um, growing very slowly. We always had a, a a cash deficit. We always had a, you know, we always had a problem with cash flow because we just needed to pile cash into our inventory yeah. to be able to sell on. Our industry is just in time, mostly. Yeah. They want product in two or three days. Yeah. So either you've either got it or you don't. Um, and we just kind of bumbled on through until, you know, for a long time actually, for yeah. probably about another seven years after that. And um, I think, and I'm thankful, if I ever meet, um, if I ever meet him, I'll be um, <laughs> enormously grateful. I am enormously grateful, but I'll tell him if I meet him. I, so David Attenborough for me, Sir David Attenborough. Okay. So, yeah, he, I thought you were going to say Peter Jones. <laughs> no. So no. David Attenborough changed I think he, he's changed the world in the last couple of years huh. um, not just him but the team around the um, blue planet yeah um, the, 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 the ocean it's really way, raised awareness and made it a you know a yeah. wonderful thing to be I th- yeah absolutely I think I, I think it did more than raise awareness I think there was enough awareness but it was not powerful enough for yeah. people not to ignore yeah you know I think when we first started talking about sustainability, some people didn't even really understand what it meant. But yeah. you know, five or six years ago, everyone knew what it meant, and everyone knew that we shouldn't really be using plastic, and everyone yeah. knew all those things, but no one was really doing anything about it. Well, he may be watching this, so you can thank him. Thank you, Sir David, for uh, changing the world. <laughs> um, well, yeah. um, Dej, what an awesome story and a fantastic product. So if somebody wants to buy one of these, how do they do it? They, you can just go to search The Whole Leaf Company or go to thewholeleafco.com yeah. um, or go to Amazon and search The Whole Leaf Company and you can buy there, buy loads and give them out to your friends. And um, yeah, and I... And I you know, I'm also really grateful to our really early stage e-commerce customers actually because once we set up a platform online, we were then, we were getting cash flow. And actually it was just the people who were randomly finding us online and just going, you know, I've never heard of them, but it looks great. I'm just going to send them money and hope the product turns up and trusting us. If you search palm leaf, no, if you search paper plates globally, yeah. we would come up with the top three results. Because it was really early stage, so and people weren't really focusing on SEO, and we sort of did. In 2009, yeah. we were looking at keywords and meta tags, and so, so SEO, search engine optimization, search engine optimization, not paying for not paying for ads, yes, but, uh, getting there sort of organically, yeah. getting there organically, yeah. And we were, um, you know, we were very fortunate to 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 um, have the benefit of that very early on. So all these things came together to allow us to survive. Well. Yeah. Amazing story, amazing company, amazing guy. It's a good, uh, good note to end on. Amazing. Thanks, Thanks you so much. Thanks, Greg.